Hello, survivalists. This is the crux, True Survival Stories, and I'm your host, Casey McIntosh, joined by Julie Henningsen. Julie will be leading the story for us today. Hey, how's it going, Julie? Hi, Casey. Doing great. I'm excited to share this story. I'm excited to hear it. Today, I'm going to share a tale of bravery, tragedy, and the unyielding human spirit. We will embark on a journey back to the scorching summer of 1949, deep within the rugged terrain of Man Gulch, Montana, a place where a deadly inferno would test the mettle of a group of smoke jumpers, men who danced on the edge of danger to protect our wilderness. The Man Gulch fire is etched in the annals of firefighting history. As this firestorm bore down on these smoke jumpers, decisions were made in mere seconds that would alter the course of their lives forever. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Can you imagine smoke jumping in the 40s and the types of equipment and everything in comparison to what's available now? That in itself is terrifying. Oh, I know. Yeah, the the weight, the sheer weight of the equipment they were carrying and the clothing that they would have had to wear <clears throat> and even the airplanes they were flying back then. I'm excited to share this story. And I would say that um, both Casey and I, I'm certain, are familiar with where this took place in Montana, near Helena, Montana. Um, do you remember kind of learning about some of the details of this incident? I worked for the Forest Service for a summer when I lived in Bozeman, actually. And I just remember during the fire training, hearing this story recounted. And I remember that there's some tragedy involved in this one, isn't there? There is. Yeah, it is a survival story, but... It's also a tragic story and events that sort of shaped some of the training and preparation that goes into wildland firefighting, even to this day. It's a pretty well-known story, uh, something that I've known about or read about, thought about for years in a few different contexts. One is there's a folk band called Cry, Cry, Cry um, that covered a song about this fire in the late 90s. And the song itself is a family favorite in our household for road trips and kitchen sing-alongs. So I've listened to that song many times and we will, let's include a link to the song. It's a good one. It really describes uh, the events from the perspective of the foreman of the. I'm having a moment of amusement thinking about your family dancing and singing to the song in your kitchen. (laughs) Oh yes. On more than many occasions. Will you reenact that for me when I come visit next time, please? Absolutely. The Henningsen family singers (laughs) harmonizing this song. The song was inspired by a book um, called Young Men in Fire, which is a popular book written by Norman McLean, a popular Montana writer, uh, published after Norman McLean's death in the early 90s. And yeah, just a pretty well-known story. Norman McLean was also the author of A River Runs Through It, and one of his, probably his most popular novel, which is also a Montana classic. And of course, later became a movie starring Brad Pitt. Nobody forgets that part. 
Nobody forgets that part. Yeah. So as the song Cold Missouri Waters goes, our story begins in August 49, North Montana, the hottest day on record and the forest tinder dry. Lightning struck south of an area called the Man Gulch, which is a tributary of the Missouri River with really steep canyon side walls, right near an area called Gates of the Mountain, which is close to Helena. I'm sure you're familiar with Gates of the Mountain, Casey. And this area was actually named by Lewis and Clark in 1805 on their westward journey. So the fire was initially spotted by a fire watcher named Jim Harrison, who also happened to be a smoke jumper around noon on August 5th. He had worked as a smoke jumper the previous season and had decided to man a fire watching station this season instead because of the the danger of the job as a smoke jumper. He decided to do something a little bit less dangerous, but still stay involved in the wildland firefighting. So he spotted the fire, he called it in, and he went on foot to start trying to manage the fire. Shortly after, within a few hours, a crew of smoke jumpers were dispatched from their base near Missoula, Montana, which is a few hours by car, so probably not very long by plane. They had called for 25 smoke jumpers, um, but the only plane available that day was a, a Douglas DC-3 that could only hold 16 smoke jumpers. The plane, which is called the Miss Montana, flew the crew of 16 to the site of the Man Gulch fire. They decided not to wait for a second plane, but just go with fewer numbers than what they thought was ideal. So this was a hot day. The temperature around the time that the crew jumped out of the plane was about 97 degrees. And it was was a turbulent flight. In fact, one of the smoke jumpers on the plane got sick, got motion sick in the flight to the Man Gulch, and he didn't jump because he was sick. Um, So that actually left only 15 smoke jumpers that responded. And interestingly, this one smoke jumper who didn't jump just flew with the plane back to base. As soon as he got off the plane back in Missoula, he resigned his position as smoke jumper. Wow, that's interesting. Had he jumped before? Probably. Good good question. Yeah, I guess he would have had to in a training situation at the very least. And it's unclear if it was his motion sickness that made him think he wasn't cut out for the jump or just maybe a gut feeling. So the winds were blowing and the... Smoke jumpers parachuted out of the plane and they landed up canyon, up gulch of where this fire was burning. The fire was invisible to them on the ridge below them and to the south. So they were on the north half of the the river, the little man gulch river, and the fire was burning on the steep wall of the south side. And this gulch is steep kind of canyon walls, if you can picture that. Some places are 75%. Some places are 75% incline, so quite steep, which is a a fire hazard, especially on these grass-covered hillsides where the fire can just really quickly climb uphill, easy upward spread with those of steep slopes. Well, and it probably is relating to updrafts, right? Yeah, the... Exactly. The wind weather that day and the fire itself were just, just pushing the fire up the hillsides and also up canyon. So they were off to a rough start and the radio they were going to use was attached to its own little parachute that didn't open when they left the plane and it was destroyed on impact. So they had lost their communication right out of the gate. The foreman of this crew was a 
relatively older in comparison to the rest of the crew, smoke jumper named Wagner Dodge. He was close to 30 years old and the rest of the crew was close to 20 between the ages of about 19 and 28 on the high end. But most of them were like 19, 20, 21 years old. When they got on scene, Dodge, the foreman, met up with Jim Harrison, the fire watcher who had spotted the fire about four hours ago and had been fighting the fire, trying to contain it by himself for about the last four hours. So they rendezvoused and came up with a plan. So the plan initially was to just walk in a side hill direction on the north side of the river towards where the fire was burning on the south side. The crew gathered kind of near the bottom of the gulch to start this side hill trek. And the rest of the crew got a head start from Dodge and Jim Harrison, who were rendezvousing to regroup. So as the majority of the crew was headed along the side hill, um, it was this steep slope, as I described, but there were a lot of kind of narrow ridges and little hollows that ran perpendicular to the ridge line that sort of obscured their view of what was coming up ahead of them. Um, they were trekking through about knee-high cheat grass, which is particularly volatile fuel for a grass fire. Behind them, Dodge and Jim Harrison did that about 5.45 p.m., the fire had unexpectedly jumped the river, jumped the canyon, and was now on the north side, which is a south-facing slope, which makes it a little bit more dangerous in terms of lack of of fuel moisture. So they saw the fire jump before the rest of the crew did, who was actually the rest of the crew being closer to the fire. So they tried to get their attention and tell them, you know, turn around, don't keep going that way, we need to retreat. And the fact that the fire now was raging on both sides of the canyon, it precluded their ability to get down to the river as an escape route, which I'm guessing probably would have been their preferred escape route if they could access the river below them, but out of reach now. So did the group that was ahead, did they get the message to discontinue? Yeah. So pretty shortly Dodge caught up to the men to tell them to turn back, drop all their gear. Initially it was like drop your heavy equipment, but eventually drop all your gear, head uphill towards the ridge and try and retreat. At this point, the fire was about 500 feet behind them and heading up the hillside towards them. That sounds nightmarish. Yeah. 500 feet is not a big distance. Have any idea of how fast this was traveling? Is there any way of knowing that? I don't have a kind of speed per se, but I will tell you that it was traveling significantly faster than, than they were able to travel, which was probably deceiving. You know, they, they may have felt like, okay, we just, we just need to outrun this thing. Kind of like the idea that you can in Yellowstone Park, you can outrun a bison or something like it feels maybe reasonable, but the incline was helping the fire move quickly and the winds were, were strong, pushing the fire up the gulch. So Dodge, the foreman, who sounds like really had the most experience in this group, he realized that they weren't going to make it long before they reached the ridge line. So he had this idea on the spot. He came up with, he reasoned this plan where he struck a match and he lit the grass on fire in front of him. Or as the song goes, he struck a match to waste high grass. And he created a burnt out area thinking that they could just lay down in the center of this refuge 
where the grass had already burned because of the fire he set, and that the bigger fire then would just pass them over. So I'm sure that was a terrifying and very risky proposition to think that you would just lay there and let this giant wildfire around you on all sides. But Dodge just had this inclination that that was the only way they were going to escape. In your research for the story, did you find anything that had indicated that this technique had been used in other circumstances or is this where the technique was born? Yeah, that's such a great question and so interesting because I had assumed, oh, this was just a firefighting technique, but it wasn't. It was not something that he, that Dodge had been trained in. It was not part of any of the crew's training. It was a completely unfamiliar approach that none of the firefighters would have ever been exposed to. However, interestingly enough, it is a technique that happened to have been used probably by thousands of years by Plains Indians in the past to escape fast moving ground fires. So in that context, it was definitely a known successful approach, but that was not information that had ever been presented to this particular crew or to, at the time, modern day wildland firefighters. That is really interesting. Yeah. Um, and after afterwards, a spoiler alert, Dodge survives. But afterwards, he talked about how it just came to him as you know, something that seemed in that moment, like really quick thinking, well, this might work and I don't really have any other um, safe options. So that's what inspired him to give it a try. But because it wasn't a known approach, most of the crew didn't really understand what he was doing. Either they understood what he was doing and, and were skeptical, maybe didn't think it was going to work, or they just didn't understand what he was doing. So they kept going up the hill. And in the chaos, in the mayhem of the situation, Dodge was yelling at them and encouraging them and, and suggesting that they join him in this burnt out area. And they all, for whatever reason, did not. Julie, I think that this is where the saying in the heat of the moment comes from. Oh, yes, I agree. That makes sense. Yeah. So he was fast thinking in the heat of the moment, and there was some heat in that moment. <laughs> the other factor that was like playing a role in this is that Dodge didn't really know most of the crew. He had been doing maintenance work at the base and they were early in their kind of training season, still getting to know each other. So they didn't know him well. They didn't maybe trust him the way you would a leader that well, you'd worked with for a long time that kind of developed. In the heat of the... Go ahead. Oh my gosh. I just was going to say in the heat of the moment. <laughs> Again, just the <laughs> intensity of that experience and knowing there's a pretty good chance I'm going to burn to death. I'm sure that your common sense and your thinking ability is probably not top notch. And like if, if you didn't know the person that made the suggestion it seems a little bit ludicrous to just say, hey, we're just going to sit right in the middle of it and let the fire go around us. I can see where they're coming from. Yeah, I'm sure they're in a, a very much in a fight or flight mode at that point. And they're fleeing um, and it would take a lot to get them to be able to stop that human instinct to just flee, which is all the more impressive that Dodge did not only come up with this idea, but was able to resist that urge to, to just run uphill. So Dodge was the only one who laid down in the burnt area and the, he did. He let the fire just really violently pass him over. There's 
recounting of this that just talk about the intensity of that, the heat and the fire burning around him, but not on him. He escaped the fire. And so that makes you think like, well, okay, maybe he escaped being burnt, but in a situation like this, wouldn't it really expose him to the possibility of death by just smoke and toxic gas inhalation that close to him? Um, and what I, one thing I learned in researching this story is that it's really common in structure fires to experience death by smoke and gas inhalation um, because of the confined atmosphere. It virtually is non-existent in wildland fire fatalities. Um, that is usually not a cause of death in wildland fires. It's usually getting burned by the fire itself. Or the other thing that I would wonder is, could you just be cooked almost like being inside the oven? It would be so incredibly hot. Yeah, that's a great point. Like more of a heat stroke situation. Um, the rest of the crew kept heading up, including Jim Harrison, who had already been working on the fire for four hours by himself. He was exhausted when they got there. So he um, did not have much energy, but was you know, doing his best with the others to run uphill towards these rocks that were along the ridge line. And two of the smoke jumpers actually managed to escape through a deep fissure in that rock ridge that really only through sheer luck did they find out actually reached the other side of the ridge. They didn't know the terrain, so they were taking their chances by following this kind of rock fissure up and over the ridge. And it paid off for them. Maybe they were distant relatives of John Coulter or something. Yes, could be. I wouldn't be surprised. It's a small state here in Montana. Two other smoke jumpers also survived, but were badly burned, and they were rushed to the hospital that same evening, but died the next day of their injuries and burns. Oh, and this rock fissure that the two survivors managed to escape through later became known as Rescue Gulch. Were they just able to traverse through this rocky fissure faster than if they had been on the place that they had departed from? Yeah, I think it was a matter of they got to the ridgeline faster and maybe they were ahead somehow. And they picked like exactly the right spot to get with nestled within these rocks, this rock feature to avoid the fire. So at, by the end of the day, actually by 5.56 p.m., which was only, and it was less than two hours after they had arrived, 13 firefighters had died. 11 were killed in the fire itself, and two who sustained fatal burns and died the next day in the hospital. Only three of the 16 smoke jumpers survived. So those who survived were Dodge, the foreman, age 33 at the time of the fire. And sadly, he died about five years later of Hodgkin's lymphoma. And then the two uh, smoke jumpers who made it through that rock fissure, Walter Rumsey, age 21, from Kansas. He lived to be age 52 and interestingly died in an airplane crash in 1980. And then the third survivor, Robert Saley, was the youngest man on the crew. He was only 17 at the time of the fire. And he was from Willow Creek, Montana, just down the road from where I live. He was uh, the last survivor of the smoke jumpers. He lived till age 82 and didn't die until 2014. So later in his life, for many years, he was the only survivor of this incident and provided a lot of interviews and reflection on his experience as just a young teenage boy. I cannot imagine the relief you would feel getting to the top of that ridge and also terror looking down, knowing that all of your coworkers were going up in flames right below you. 
yeah, just relief and terror and tragedy. What a thing to be a part of and what a thing to survive. I think, you know, there was probably a lot of either survivor's guilt or reflection, not only amongst the smoke jumpers themselves, but amongst the community about, you know, how did, how did this happen? And kind of what, what um, mistakes might've been made. There, there was actually some controversy surrounding um, how this all played out. In fact, some of the family members of the victims suggested that maybe the fire that Dodge lit was actually the fire that harmed the other smoke jumpers, which was later proven to not be the case. But just a lot of controversy, a lot of investigation um, into how this could have happened. Um, several months after the event, an investigator named Harry Gisborne went to do to survey the terrain and come up with a report on his findings of kind of the post-mortem of this whole event. Um, he had a known heart condition, but he came to inspect and spend time on the ground on this really steep walled gulch himself. And he showed up with some theories about what he thought might have happened that day. He, having this on-the-ground opportunity changed his mind um, and felt like he got a better picture of how this played out. He communicated these new theories that he was developing while he was there doing the inspection to a companion that day. But at the end of the day, he died of a heart attack. Literally at the end of the day he was inspecting the site, he died of a heart attack before he could share the results of his investigation with anyone else. So there's a 14th fatality to this story. So ultimately there were 14 fatalities associated with this event, sadly. Um, eventually 13 crosses were placed on the hillside where the firefighters fell. And those crosses um, remained for about 50, well, probably remain to this day, but for about 50 years, 13 crosses were in place. Um, and it was acknowledged in 2001 that one of the firefighters was Jewish. So his cross was replaced in 2001 with the Star of David. Julie, should we go up there and see if they're still there? I'd actually love to do that. Just a gentle hike someday. Yeah, just a gentle 75% incline hike. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's go count those crosses. Find that Star of David. It looks on the map like it's actually not that, like it would actually be fairly easy to get to from the Missouri. It might involve a float, which would make it even more adventurous. So the airplane that dropped him off, the Miss Montana, was later restored as a memorial to the men. And it actually still is in Missoula and still flies. It's airworthy to this day. So about the fire itself, after this tragedy occurred, uh, 450 men, and I guess back in these days, I believe that this was a 100% male operation, um, fought fires for five more days to get this fire under control. It spread to 4,500 acres. So it was like five acres when it was spotted and, and it just really took off. The review of the events that occurred um, in this incident have influenced firefighter training. New protocols and um, safety precautions have been implemented to prevent future events like this. Some of the focus of these protocols has to do with emphasis on posting lookouts, people on the lookout, providing reliable commission with the people that are looking out, identifying clear escape routes before you actually need them, identifying safety zones. Just the seven Ps. Prior proper planning prevents piss poor performance. To sum it up, 
Um, despite these modifications and advances in training and uh, protocols, there have been at least two other similar tragedies in kind of Western wildland firefighting. One that occurred in 1990, the Dude Fire in Arizona, where six firefighters lost their lives. And then later in 1994, the South Canyon Fire in uh, Colorado, where 14 perished. So it's, it's risky business out there. Do you have any idea of how common deaths of firefighters, wildlife firefighting, or did you, did you see any statistics about how likely it is? To I didn't. I don't have any statistics on that. My guess is it's a lot less common now than maybe it was back in those days. But, you know, there's danger associated with all aspects of it, not just the fire, the terrain, the airplanes, the parachuting, the training, the, the heat. I think about things like Elysis, wearing all that hot gear on a hot day um, and working so hard. A lot of health and safety hazards those folks face. Right. And if you survive, everything goes okay. How likely are you to come out of that career without any lifelong injuries, like, you know, low back injuries, knee injuries, hip injuries, yeah, et cetera. It's probably a lot like urban firefighting and law enforcement, just low back injuries. So common healthcare, even low back injuries. It's fun to share this story because it's really kind of a well-known part of, of Montana's legacy. Um, and we'll share the, the song and the link to Norm McLean's book, Young Men in Fire for more information about this event, which is really a captivating book as well. So thank you for tuning in and supporting us at The Crux. If you have any comments, questions, or topic suggestions, feel free to reach out to us via email at thecruxsurvival at gmail.com or connect with us on Instagram at thecruxpodcast. We greatly appreciate your listenership and we look forward to sharing more captivating stories with you in the next week. Stay safe and take care. Thanks guys. Thanks for listening.